Welcome to another edition of the Long Gospel Devotional. My name is Eric Sorensen, pastor at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as a contributor to 1517 in all sorts of ways, including co-hosting the podcast 30 Minutes in the New Testament with Daniel Emery Price and bringing one of these videos to you each and every Tuesday, no matter where I'm at, including when I'm on the road. Indeed, I'm not in my office again this week. I am on the road because I just got done dropping off my oldest son at Hillcrest Lutheran Academy, where he will be attending uh, that boarding school for the next year of his high school career. And I'm on my way back. I'm on my way back home, and I'm in the great city of Chicago. Nevertheless, I still wanted to take some time to go through God's Word with you here. We're going to be looking this week at the Old Testament lectionary text from this upcoming Sunday's series of lectionary texts. So let's go ahead and dive right into it. Uh, what do we have in store for us today? Well, what we have in store is probably at least my favorite prophetic book in the Old Testament. We have a passage out of Isaiah chapter 29. And Isaiah 29 definitely contains some words that I would imagine for many of you are quite familiar. Uh, at least I hope so, and I, I hope to at least show that. So, uh, so let's go ahead and dive in. First of all, if I could sort of summarize what the passage is all about, it's really about God's overthrow of legalistic hypocrisy, or at least the prediction that one day he will indeed do that. The background to the text, uh, before we get into the passage, Isaiah basically reveals in the beginning of the chapter that God will both conquer Jerusalem, but also at the same time protect his people in Jerusalem. And really, this is kind of par for the course in Isaiah's prophecy. There's all sorts of warnings, but there's also all sorts of promises throughout the book. But what's most important for our purposes here is right before the passage, we're really told that the religious establishment seems to be totally blinded to God's word or God's plan for his people. Again, not something unusual when you consider all the prophecies of the Old Testament and consider really the fruition of those prophecies that we see come to pass in the New Testament. So we pick it up at verse 11. It says, And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. In other words, no matter what God seems to say through the prophet Isaiah, the leadership, the religious establishment doesn't seem to get it. They don't seem, either they don't seem to get it or they don't want to get it, no matter what. Either they seem to think that the words are sealed off to them, they can't open up anything that Isaiah says, or they just simply don't understand now, this was told to Isaiah in his initial call. You know, there's that famous passage where Isaiah is called by God to be his mouthpiece and, um, and God says, who shall I send? And Isaiah famously says, here am I, send me. And, you know, we often quote that as being this great act of faith on Isaiah's part. What we don't often quote is God's promise to Isaiah right after that, when he says, all right, good, you're going to be my guy, but just know you will speak and they will not hear and you will demonstrate and they will not see. And that's basically going to be the way your whole ministry goes. And indeed, that does tend to be the case with Isaiah. 
So what we see is a case of spiritual blindness, and this spiritual blindness is directly connected to legalistic hypocrisy. Look at what it says in verse 13. And the Lord said, because the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Now, if you remember, this is quoted by Jesus numerous times as he talks about the religious establishment of his day. As a matter of fact, he says Isaiah was prophesying about them when he wrote this. And indeed, what we see here is the way prophecy often works. On the one hand, it is speaking to the audience directly at the time. It's speaking about events that are happening at the time. But it also has this forward-looking fulfillment. Indeed, Jesus says, ultimately, what Isaiah was prophesying about was you people, you Pharisees and you Sadducees and you scribes and you religious leaders. You honor me with your lips, with your mouth, but your hearts are far from me, and your commandments are the commandments of men. Or the way Jesus says it, paraphrasing it, you teach the traditions of men instead of the word of God. Yes, that is indeed what always happens when legalism enters into the equation. And so God says, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder. Now, what does he mean there? Well, we'll get an answer to that question in just a little bit, but let's focus on this tendency towards legalism, and specifically legalistic hypocrisy. It always tends to be the case that legalists add to God's word and then teach it authoritatively to the people under them as if it has the same weight or authority of God's word. And what this ends up doing is making people that do all the right motions outwardly but do not have a heart that has been transformed and converted by the power of the Holy Spirit through God's word. I can't help but think, but think of a character from the show Gamora, who is a leader of a mafia crew, a large mafia crew. He's a, a very violent, very vicious drug lord. And yet, one of the things about his character is that he is very, very religious, goes to mass every day, makes sure that he does everything that he's supposed to do as uh, a good Catholic should. And yet, of course, he is as hypocritical as it gets. Well, in you know, it might not have been that the Pharisees or the Sadducees were quite on the level of a mafia leader, but nevertheless, the same spirit of hypocrisy pervaded them as it did the religious establishment of Isaiah's day. Also, legalistic hypocrisy leads people to believe that they're the ones in control. And man, if there's anything that drives the spirit of legalism, it is a rejection of faith for a sense of control. Rules and the ability to follow them, or at least to think we're following them, manageable rules give us a sense that we've got control over this thing. We've got control over our relationship with God. God becomes sort of a big spiritual vending machine in which we, in which we put in the right rule following and thereby he is happy with us. This is always what drives it. I can't help but think of uh, my friend Dave Zoll, who once quipped, I don't know if it was his quote or if he was quoting somebody else, when he said, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but control. 
Indeed, what drives the spirit of legalism is a need to control and even to feel like they're in control of God. And so what does Isaiah say? Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? As if God doesn't see. They've convinced themselves that like, well, whatever wrong we've done, God, God doesn't notice. It's fine. He continues, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. Again, it's obvious. This is a uh, sort of Isaiah using rhetoric. It's ridiculous. It's insane. The idea that we would be able to steer the ship, that we would be in control of God, that we, the clay, would be able to say we control the potter, that we form the potter is ridiculous and it's absurd. And yet that is exactly what legalism does. Legalism seeks to be in the driver's seat rather than allow and submit to the fact that God is in the driver's seat. And so Isaiah rebukes it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how will God overthrow? How does God overthrow legalistic hypocrisy back then in Jesus' day and frankly today? Well, let me start by saying it's not what you think. Typically what we think anytime that, you know, we think God's going to overthrow anything, we we tend to think it's going to be with fire from heaven. We tend to think that it's going to be with great wrath and furious anger. And indeed, one day there will be a time where God finally does end this. But no, what Isaiah says is there's going to be wonder upon wonder done, but it's not going to be the kind of wonders you think it will be. Listen to what he says. Let's go back to verse 14 again. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder. And then he says this, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now, does that last quote, that last part I have in bolden there, does that sound familiar to you? Well, if you're a student of the New Testament, then it should because that, that passage is quoted directly by the Apostle Paul when he is making the case for preaching one thing and one thing only to the Corinthian church. What is that thing? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Even here in Isaiah's prophecy, God is alluding to the fact that what will overthrow legalism, what will overthrow legalistic, hypocritical leadership of his people, of course, it still happens today, unfortunately, sadly, but the answer is the same. What is God's answer? He's going to do something that overthrows the wisdom of the wise and gets rid of the discernment of the discerning men and those who think they know everything, by presenting over and over and over again the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, the crucifixion is the wonder of wonders. God overthrows the religious establishment by, in the strangest of ways, submitting to their punishment of him so that he might atone for the world, even including them. Yes, I know, it seems crazy, but that is the testimony of the rest of Scripture. And so what does this wonderful act of God bring about as he overthrows the religious establishment's hypocrisy and indeed replaces the, the center of the faith with the crucified one? Well, it creates a new people, and yet the new people are not who we might think they are. Look at verse 17. 
Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. All of this has shades of beatitude type uh, pronouncements, just like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that the ones that you think have no business having access to God, or certainly God would have no interest in, those are the ones who rejoice at the thought of Jesus being crucified for the sins of the world. Indeed, even the allusion up front to this Lebanon being turned into a fruitful field, you might go, well, what does that mean? Well, Lebanon was Gentile. This is a prophecy telling us that God is going to reject the establishment, and he's even going to make those who are the most fervent non-believers into his followers and indeed bring joy to them. In, he continues, verse 20, For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside who is in the right. Indeed, that's exactly what the Pharisees did to Jesus, and that's exactly why they were overthrown. So you see here, this passage is a really great example of what we've talked about throughout in this devotional series. You see the law up front, the pronouncement of guilt against the religious establishment, establishment and God's anger to them for that. And yet you see the promise of gospel, of good news that will come on account of what Jesus has done for us that will bring life and salvation to all who know they need it. In other words, to those who know, naturally, they're losers that they don't, they don't deserve salvation, but yet they cling to the grace of God, knowing that that's enough for salvation in Christ Jesus. And so you say, well, why does God do it? Well, there's an allusion to that in verse 22. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. In other words, the allusion here is to God's covenant with Abraham. And what did God say to Abraham? God said that he promised he would raise up for him out of his loins all the nations, people from all the nations that would indeed become worshipers of the Lord. So God is faithful to the promise that he's made to Father Abraham, and he's faithful to the promise that he's made to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, lastly, as a result of that, God creates a new people. Remember at the very beginning, these people were doing all the practices of worship, but their hearts were far from God. They were saying the right things, but they didn't, it wasn't sincere. Well, now God says as a result of being cleansed and renewed by faith in Jesus Christ, God sees us now as true and perfect worshipers as people that do come to him in spirit and in truth because the Holy Spirit has indeed come and possessed us, has taken us over. And therefore, God accepts our worship as being pure and right and good. And frankly, even if we come just like those who uh, are distant in our hearts or our thoughts because we are standing in the righteousness of Christ, even our 
limp worship, even our worship that that is distracted and far from what it ought to be because we never could worship enough, even that is seen as acceptable before the throne of God because Jesus even takes our our uh, distracted worship and intercedes on our behalf. It really is a beautiful picture of how God will fix us purely by grace on account of Christ. And so it concludes what it will look, what this worship looks like. Verse 23, for when he sees his children, he's talking about Jacob here, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. And so you have two promises here at the end as a result of what God has done in Christ for us at the cross. Well, you have first the promise that those who have received that gift can't help but come in awe at the grace that they have been given. They can't help but stand in awe of God being so loving and kind to them. And yet also, God is going to be faithful to go after those who even go astray. God is, so there's a, there's a promise of evangelistic fervor in this, that as a result of what Jesus has done, he's going to go after the lost sheep. He's going to leave the 99 and go after the one. And indeed, that's what he does, and that's what he will continue to do until the Lord returns. So, so that is the prophecy for today. That is the passage for today from the Law and Gospel devotional, Isaiah chapter 29. I hope that's been encouraging to you. God's richest blessings to you. And I look forward to being back here with you in my normal surroundings next Tuesday. Have a great week.